Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, before we get into tonight's stories, I just want to let you know that we are currently raising money for Black Girls Code in honor of Black History Month. Black Girls Code is an organization that works to get young black women into the tech industry. Things like game design, uh, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and so, so much more. It's a really amazing program, and I think it's very important that programs like these get the funding and the support that they need. I do have a goal set, so if you're interested in donating, it'll be to the right of the video if you're on desktop, and it'll be below the video if you're on mobile. Thank you again, everyone, for listening, and let's jump right into tonight's stories. When riding public buses, there are several conventions we all try to follow, three of which stand out above the rest. Don't talk to people you don't know. Don't look at anyone, and don't purposely touch a fellow passenger. These simple rules make the unpleasant reality of being stuffed like sardines into a tiny metal death machine just a slight bit more tolerable. They're good rules to live by even outside public transit's turbulent ecosystem. While I would never speak out against these norms, I did find myself thinking people took them way too seriously when it came to Teresa, the young woman in the back seat. They avoided her bench like the plague, even when the bus was packed to the brim. I only discovered the reason the day I broke all the rules and decided to sit next to her. Teresa looked like a pleasant person. The combination of her long bleach blonde hair, narrow frame, cheerful grin, and brightly colored clothes gave the impression of someone with a rather sunny disposition. Any man would be lying if they claimed not to find her attractive, which is why I couldn't help but wonder why no one ever sat next to her. Did she stink of B.O.? Did she have restless leg syndrome? Was she one of those entitled jerks who used an oversized purse or book bag to guard the other seat? I wanted to find out. The first time I spoke to her, I was on my way home from another boring lecture. I'd made the mistake of picking my university major based on what my friends were doing. One by one, they flunked out, abandoning me to study a subject I had absolutely no interest in. I suppose it was the loneliness that encouraged me to sit across from Teresa that day and break one of the bus's all-important social conventions. Hey, I said, waving at her nervously. She didn't look up or respond in any way. Maybe she thought I was talking to someone else. I couldn't blame her. She'd seemingly been an outcast for so long that being addressed must have seemed a little strange. Excuse me? I continued, leaning closer to her so I could get her attention. She looked shocked when she realized I was speaking to her. I saw her jump slightly like a grade schooler being snapped out of a daydream by their teacher. Are you talking to me? She asked, her voice as bubbly as that of Malibu Barbie. 
I could see her ever-present grin broaden lightly with excitement. She obviously enjoyed the attention, and I was relieved because I rarely invoked such positive responses from women. Usually I'd get a scowl or a rude fuck off. This was much better, and I felt my cheeks flush red unexpectedly. My tongue started to get tangled in my mouth, making it hard for me to respond. Yeah, yeah, I managed to say amidst a few unintelligible syllables. I'm, I, I'm, I'm David. Again, she looked surprised. As she leaned forward to examine me, my eyes wandered to her chest. I caught myself before she could notice and quickly returned my gaze to her face. It was just as pleasant to look at as the alternative. I'm Teresa, she replied. I'd broken the ice, and now it was time to inquire about her predicament. I couldn't outright ask her about it, though. I had to be sneaky. The last thing I wanted was for her to think I was an asshole, so I went about it a little backhandedly. Not a lot of people on the bus today, huh? Thank God. I got wedged between that old perv and sweaty fat guy yesterday. <laughs> Talk about a long bus ride. I complained, waiting for her reaction. She laughed and gave me a dismissive shrug. I continued. It, you don't seem to have that problem. What's your secret? Is it Mace? Because I'm totally cool with macing someone in the face if it'll keep them from squeezing me into a human lemonade. Teresa tittered, shaking her head. No mace involved, sorry. People don't like this seat because they think it's too cold. There's a crack on the ceiling, makes it really chilly back here, she explained. Curious, I peered toward the lumpy, half-rusted ceiling. I couldn't see the crack, but I believed her. The bus was well over 20 years old. It was leaking all kinds of things from all kinds of places. It came as no surprise that the back seat was getting a little more fresh air than the rest. The city really needed to consider retiring these older vehicles. It must get really cold in the winter, I commented. Teresa shrugged. Yeah, you get used to it. I'd sit closer in the front if I could. Wouldn't mind having someone to talk to. It can get pretty lonely here, she answered. We can keep each other company, I offered, almost too quickly. Hopefully she didn't think I was coming on too strong. Teresa's eyes sparkled with joy. That'd be great, she answered, just as enthusiastically. We chatted about everything and nothing for the duration of the bus ride. I was so focused on the conversation that I nearly missed my stop. Hell, even when I realized it was time to get off, I had half a mind to stay behind so we could just keep talking. I knew, however, that I'd get a chance to see her again soon. With a friendly wave, I exited the vehicle. Wanting to sneak off a final glance at her, I peered toward the window of the bus as it drove off. To my surprise, I didn't see her sitting in the back seat. Oh well, I figured. Probably dropped something and bent over to pick it up. I didn't see Teresa for about a week, partially because my schedule had me finish classes at all hours of the day, and partially because midterms were just looming around the corner, and I felt the need to book a study room in the library. 
I needed absolute silence to focus, and I sure as hell wasn't going to get that at home. It was late one evening when I heard the familiar shriek of age-old brakes as the usual rust bucket made its way into the station. After paying my fare, I stepped down to the empty bus's dimly lit hallway, trying my best to ignore the ominous atmosphere, blinking neon lights, squeaking floor tiles, and claw-like gauges of rust along the walls. I tried to convince myself there was nothing unusual about it. I'd heard the same sounds, seen the same sights in broad daylight, yet I couldn't help but feel apprehensive. My fears dissipated the moment I heard Teresa's voice calling to me. Welcome back, she said. What was she doing on the bus so late? Could she have been a fellow student? Thanks, I answered. It's nice to see you again. She gave the seat next to her a firm slap. Come here, she invited. The bus was empty, and I had my pick of any seat I wanted, but it would have been impolite to refuse her invitation. As I made my way toward her, the bus flew out of the station at full speed. I twisted around like a drunken ballerina, landing right next to her. A chill ran down my spine the moment my body slouched against the seat. Not one of those holy shit I'm terrified type of chills. An actual literal chill. She wasn't joking when she said it was cold in the back. I could see my breath and feel the hairs on my body perk. Teresa's soft smile never faltered. Careful there, she teased as her hand slowly reached toward me. My breath. I could see my breath with each exhale. Why couldn't I see hers? Her face approached mine as though she meant to kiss me. Her face approached mine as though she meant to kiss me. She traced her fingers delicately along my arm. In any other situation, I would have welcomed the sensual touch, but I was too busy wondering about her breath, or about the lack of breath. My eyes wandered to the window, and the nervous sensation in the pit of my stomach returned. She wasn't there. No, that's not quite right. There was something in the window, but it wasn't visible. I don't know how to explain it. It was as though there was a visible absence of something where she sat. I could see my own reflection and that of the bench, but we were partially obscured by a shadow and a very loose shape of a woman. Suddenly her gentle touch turned violent. She jabbed her fingernails into my skin, causing me to let out a whimper. The moment I opened my mouth to scream, she lunged at me and pressed her lips against mine. For a brief moment, it felt euphoric. My head began to spin. I felt exhausted, as though I'd just gone to the gym. Every muscle in my body loosened into jello as she climbed on top of me, forcing the kiss to linger longer than reasonable. My vision blurred as she seemed to suck the life right out of me. I had no will to move or fight back. My body just sat there, uselessly. 
I might have let myself fade into unconsciousness if not for the pain. Oh God, the pain. I felt as though my blood was boiling and freezing at the same time. I still don't know if she was causing it or if it was my body's way of trying to jerk me back to my senses. The pain spreaded over every inch of my body, making my skin and bones prickle like a million mosquito bites. The searing pain was unlike anything I'd ever felt before in my life, as though my nervous system had been replaced by strobe lights from an underground rave. I couldn't help but thrash violently to try and ease the pain of lava coursing through my veins. I don't know what would have happened if the bus hadn't come to an abrupt stop at that moment. My convulsing body flew right through her and landed face first on the center aisle couldn't move. In the moments before I passed out, I was aware of nothing but the smell of rubber and the sound of the engine purring loudly. The world faded to black. Not another one, I heard as I came to. I let out a pained groan. You alive? asked the man. I felt strong arms lift me and place me on a seat. My mind was hazy, my body was so drained that I could barely keep my head up. I opened my eyes, spotting a pair of clean dress shoes in front of me. The bus driver knelt down, giving me a light slap to the cheek to wake me up. Come on, bud, he urged. You think I was drunk? In a painfully slow motion, I lifted a hand to my face. I could feel grooves imprinted on my skin from the slip-proof rubber carpet that covered the length of the aisle. How long had I been out? I grumbled tiredly. Good. Your collar's coming back. That's a good sign, he said. I know he kept talking to me for a while, but I was so out of it that I could only recall snippets of the conversation. He sat with me until a cab arrived to take me home, and then escorted me to the door. As I disembarked, I remembered looking at the back seat and finding it empty. Uh, the girl. I mumbled as he ushered me into the cab. He held the door for a moment and held a grave expression on his face. I saw him eye the back of the bus cautiously. She won't be bothering anyone anytime soon, he uttered before shutting the door without another word. It was the last time I saw Teresa. I've ridden the same bus since, but now both seats in the back are empty. But hey, at least now I know why no one sat next to Teresa on the bus. There's a thing called Blind Murphy, and he is blind, so shall you be. Silent in sight, he'll crawl and creep until he drags you into the sleep.
I read the words again, my gaze moving over the soft peaks and valleys of the neat childish scrawl that lined the front cover of the book. It was just an old, worn-down copy of ghost stories. I loved scary stories when I was a kid, and back then it wasn't as easy to get them as it is nowadays. This book, this one I had actually checked out before a few years earlier when I was about 9 or 10. It had been too hard for me then, but as my love of stories had grown, so had my capacity for reading them. By 14, I was ready to give it another try, and my excitement only grew with the creepy little poem I found in the front. And hadn't been there last time that I checked the book out. I would have remembered it. And I'd never heard of Blind Murphy before either. I asked my best friends, Kenny and Roxanne, if they'd ever heard of it, and when they said no, I showed them the book. Kenny just rolled his eyes and said it looked like kid stuff, but Roxanne seemed interested. She read through it a couple times, and then her eyes lit up. It's a riddle. Kenny puffed out a disgruntled sigh. We were supposed to go play basketball, and now I'd gotten Roxy distracted with what he called my nerd shit, which was his general term for anything we talked about that didn't seem interesting or funny to him. Ignoring him, I asked Roxy what she meant. She then flipped the book over and gave it to me. I mean, I can't say for sure, but if you look at it, it's not just a poem or whatever. Like, how it's worded, it's... It's like he's blind, and you'll be blind too. Silent in sight. I don't know what that means, but then it's talking about him crawling and creeping and getting you and... I don't know, knocking you out? Putting you to sleep? Like a dog? Kenny interjected, earning a glare from Roxy. Ignoring her, he met my eyes. Come on, it's getting late. Can we get going? Roxy smirked. I think he's scared. Afraid Blind Murphy's going to come and get him. Kenny's face flushed red. We'd all been friends since fifth grade, but in the last year or two, he'd gotten more and more sensitive when Roxy gave him a hard time. I'm not. It's just... It's just dumb shit. Stupid kitty shit. Torn between sympathy and cruelty, I gave him to the latter. Looking down at the book, I started reading the poem, or riddle, or whatever it was, over and over like a melodramatic spooky chant. Roxy stood up and started echoing it, dancing around Kenny as he fumed. I knew I should have stopped. He was going from irritated and a little embarrassed to something deeper. Anger, or sadness, or maybe some kind of fear I didn't understand. Or maybe I did understand. At least a little. Because my own heart was beating fast now, the words tumbling out faster than I could catch them as I rolled the lines quicker and quicker, Roxy's eyes growing startled and wide as she began to jump and dance and scream, the lines loud enough that a distant part of me worried someone would come from inside the library and tell us to leave, the outside benches where we were hanging out. I could feel something stretching out between us three, drawing tighter and tighter as everything sped up and the air grew thin. Fuck you both. Kenny's words seemed to break us from the spell. Not that he said it, but the emotion behind it. We really heard him. And as he stalked off, he ignored our yells for him to stop, to come back, that it was only a joke. I could see from the direction he was going, he wasn't heading to the court anymore, but 
going back home and feeling a stab of guilt, I looked over at Roxy and asked if we should go after him. She shook her head. He's just being a baby. He'll be fine, you'll see. The next morning, my mother woke me up crying, telling me my friend Ken had been... killed in his bedroom the night before. The police wound up talking to us, but we had nothing really to tell. No explanation as to how or why someone got into Kenny's room, drug him under the bed, and then crushed his eyes in their sockets. Me and Roxy barely spoke again after that. Kenny's death was between us now, but he wasn't alone. Blind Murphy was there, too. I knew I hadn't told the police anything about the words in the book, and I felt sure she hadn't either. Not because we didn't think it was somehow important and connected, but because we knew it was. The idea sounded crazy in the daylight, but in the shade of our hearts, we understood that those words, and maybe how we used them against Kenny, had called something to him. And maybe to us as well. I spent weeks after that, waiting for it to come for me. Jumpy, anxious, and sleep-deprived, I wound up at the ER for a panic attack, and that led to therapy and medication to deal with grief issues. It helped some, but time helped more. By the time I was in college, I'd put enough distance from Blind Murphy and Ken that I didn't think about them every day, much less fear something was going to get me. And that's when Roxy disappeared. It was big news when it happened. A pretty 21-year-old girl was abducted from her apartment in the middle of the night. Her roommates said she'd come in running in the park, looking all upset and flustered, but when they'd asked her what was wrong, she just shook her head and went to her room locking the door behind her. When she didn't come out the next day, they eventually got the landlord to get the door open and check on her. There were some signs of struggle in there, but no Roxy or sign of where she'd gone. Even ten years later, no one's heard from her since she shut the door. Except... That's not entirely true. Because that night, sometime between when she got home and when she had taken, she texted me. We hadn't talked since the summer after high school ended, but I still felt a strange tingle of happy excitement when I saw her name pop up on my phone. Maybe enough time had passed that we could actually start being... Close your eyes. Close your eyes. What did that even mean? I texted her back a couple of times asking what she was saying or if there was more to the text, but I never heard back. It wasn't until three days later that police out there contacted me about the message sent from her phone and I first learned that she was gone. Time hasn't dulled my guilt or fear this time. I've known it's more of a matter of when than if 
and bleak as it sounds, that inevitability almost makes it easier. Not that I wouldn't stop it if I could, but I don't know what it is or if it can even be stopped. And if I can't do anything to stop it, at least I can try not to worry until it comes. Kind of like dying from cancer or a heart attack. Except cancer doesn't crawl across the ground and try to sneak up on you. It was just dumb luck that I saw it at all. The sun had set a few minutes earlier and I was finishing cutting the grass when one of my Bluetooth earbuds slipped from my sweaty ear and fell behind me. Muttering to myself, I turned and bent down, squinting for it in the deepening gloom. My eyes lit on the earbud for a moment before something a bit farther out caught my eye. Movement in the freshly cut grass headed in my direction. At first I thought it was a bug, even a small snake, but then I realized I was wrong. The movement wasn't between the blades of grass, but on top of them. Something unseen was pressing them down from above, two smaller patches divided by a much larger patch of depressed grass just behind. As though an invisible figure was pulling itself along, silent and invisible. Letting out a yell, I stood up and took several steps back. The depression paused its progress before course-correcting to keep heading in my slightly new direction. Even without seeing it, I knew what it must be. And I was terrified. My strongest instinct was just to run into the house and lock the door, but something stopped me. For now, I could see where it was, at least. And it was moving slowly, though there was nothing to say it couldn't jump on me at any moment. The idea of that made my heart pound harder, but I forced myself to just slowly walk backward while keeping it in view. If I just ran off, I'd lose track of it. And next time I might not see it when it came for me. Still, just walking around backward forever wouldn't work, and it could clearly track me from wherever it had come from. What else could I do? Close your eyes. Roxy's last words came back to me and I almost shut my eyes immediately. But fear made me hesitate. What if it moved when I had my eyes closed? Or what if it knew I closed my eyes and then took the chance to leap on me? Shuddering, I forced myself to stay calm. Why would Roxy say to close my eyes? She'd gotten away from it that night, hadn't she? And it had taken it a few hours to catch up with her again. What did she know and how did she know it? Maybe she'd just gotten lucky, like me, or maybe she'd figured out... Silent in sight, he'll crawl and creep. Shit. Taking another two steps back from the unseen creeping thing, I forced myself to close my eyes. Immediately, new sounds flooded my ears. 
The sound of it crawling through the dry grass toward me was faint but distinct, though I could only hear when the whispering stopped. The low crooning words that Blind Murphy was whispering to me. Come, come, come with me. Sleep by my side and be mine. We will sleep and dream. Letting out a gasp, I opened my eyes. I felt a moment of panic when I realized I couldn't see the depressions in the grass anymore. Looking around, I saw how close I was to the back patio, where there was nothing to mark this thing's passage. I closed my eyes again. Oh, the things. And opened my eyes again as I turned and took several steps to the side. It had somehow gone behind me again. It was somewhere up on the concrete. Swallowing thickly, I shut my eyes back. Won't miss them, not at all. And you'll be with... Looking up again, I saw a leaf crumple on the patio for some unseen weight pressing down on it. I had to. My eyes landed on the lawnmower. Marking the leaf as best I could in my memory, I ran over to it and pulled the engine to life. Grunting with the effort, I swung it around and charged it where I thought the thing would be. Terrified, I'd missed it. Suddenly, the lawnmower jumped in my hands as I hit something. I grabbed the handle tighter and tilted it up until I could push on top of Blind Murphy and hear the blades begin grinding down as they cut into some invisible bulk. I held it there for a moment, but it wasn't going to be enough. The blades were already grinding to a halt, and I could feel it trying to struggle out from underneath. Looking back, I saw a can of gasoline I used earlier in the afternoon. I made the mistake of closing my eyes when the fire flared to life. It had struggled out from under the mower as it dumped the gas on it, crawling toward me as I fumbled with the matches I'd found in the shed. But when the match caught it burned brightly, a searing, purplish flame curling up so quickly that I closed my eyes in pain. It was then that I began to hear it screaming. I wanted to relish in the sound, to savor some revenge against the thing that had killed my friends, but the sound was too terrible, and after a moment I opened my eyes and stepped away. When the fire died down, I hacked at the burned patch of concrete with an axe until I didn't meet any resistance anymore, and then I raked whatever remained into a deep hole before covering it. I knew it was dead. I felt sure of it, but I still couldn't bring myself to sleep in the house knowing it was buried outside. I'd have to figure out something else long term, but for that night I got a motel room halfway across town. I was exhausted by then, but it still took me hours to get to sleep. And when I woke up it was still dark. It hadn't been light that had disturbed me. But motion... The sensation of something or someone crawling onto my bed. I went to open my eyes when I heard a soft, feminine voice whispering to me. I hadn't heard it in years. But I still recognized Roxy calling to me from the foot of the bed. You didn't have to kill him, did you? That's alright. That just means there's room for the two of us. 
We'll be together again in the sleep. Just let... I rolled out of bed and ran to the bathroom, flicking on the light. It looked like I was alone. I have little memory from before the accident. I know some friends and I who are amateur ghost hunters were looking into a supposedly haunted hotel in the city. They'd opted not to pursue this particular case, but I took it upon myself to go rogue. I only knew this because that's what I was told. Apparently, I'd fallen down a flight of stairs that led from the lobby to the second floor. The hotel I visited that day was no longer in operation since the fire that consumed the building had killed a majority of its occupants. Gerald, a tall, thin, black man with a trimmed beard and long, braided hair, told me it wasn't very smart of me to enter, considering the notice on the front of the door indicating the place was condemned. He seemed a friendly sort, though I had no recollection of the apparent decade we had been friends. Nathan, the short and stonky, shaggy, brown-haired white guy who was with him, mentioned that they had recommended against entering the building, but I'd ignored their warnings. He appeared irritated by my apparent actions, and essentially told me that it was my own fault I found myself lying in a hospital bed. It would seem we discussed this case for some time, ultimately deciding it was far too dangerous to enter. From what Nathan said, I'd been particularly stubborn about this one, and went ahead without them by my side. When they realized what I'd done, they rushed into the dilapidated building to find me at the foot of the stairs, bleeding and broken. Upon visiting the restroom to wash up, I stared blankly at my reflection. I didn't recognize my own face. The man who stared back at me appeared to be in his mid to late 20s. He had curly black hair which hung down to his shoulders, a dark complexion, and appeared to have an athletic build. I raised my eyebrows. He raised his to match. I opened my mouth wide, which he also copied. I turned my head to the right while he turned his to the left, just as reflection should. Still, I did not know this man who mimicked my movements, though there was something familiar about him. I think I'd seen him before, but not like this. You alright in there? Gerald called out from the other side of the door, snapping my attention away from the stranger in the bathroom. Uh, Yeah, I'm okay, I replied in a voice that was as foreign to me as the face in the mirror. I was released from the hospital later the following day, with my left leg being in a cast as I'd broken my shin in three places. The crutches made walking easy enough, but my lower back had significant swelling, which caused even more pain due to my tightly wrapped cracked ribs. My left elbow was also bruised a good bit, but it didn't bring me nearly as much pain as my ribs and back. Still, the doctor prescribed me some pretty powerful and truly delightful feeling pain medication, which at least helped me distract from my misery a little. I was recommended to look into a psychiatrist to aid in my memory loss, as my head had not received considerable enough damage to have logically caused it, whether it was something psychosemantic or representative of some other underlying mental issue was beyond the emergency room doctor's knowledge. 
He did refer me to a neurologist in addition to urging me to consider psychiatric assistance. I'd also developed quite the aggravating cough, likely due to the swelling caused by the injuries to my ribcage. It didn't feel like a sick type of cough. I wasn't particularly phlegmy or moist, but neither was it dry. It was unlike any type of cough I'd ever experienced, though my lack of memory could not prove otherwise. It still felt unfamiliar, if that makes any sense. Still, it did cause me to buckle in pain every time I began to wheeze and splutter. Whether under the influence of my medication or not, I was in a constant degree of pain, and my cough only made that worse. It's not the cough that carries you off, a familiar voice called off in the back of my head, though I could not locate the memory of who spoke the words. Gerald suggested that I invite some alcohol to my pill party, which struck me as strange at first. For some reason, I did not see myself as old enough to purchase such beverages, though the information next to the unfamiliar face on my driver's license showed that I was 27 years of age. Though I had no recollection of Gerald or Nathan, I found myself growing quite fond of them the more time I spent in their company. Nathan had quite the dry sense of humor and often wore quite the serious expression on his face, but he was a friendly sort otherwise. Gerald was an energetic and outgoing individual who would go to great lengths to make us laugh, which unfortunately caused me to buckle and hack more. On occasion, they would reference times gone by that I could not recall. I found it mildly upsetting after another month passed since my visit to the emergency room, and I'd still not regained even a hint of my memory. My friends insisted on bringing up past events to aid in the recollection of my history. Nathan suggested that I was different, somehow, to which I replied I had no basis for comparison. He chuckled and told me I would never talk like that, but I had no answers to give. I was as confused by my mental state as they were. Regardless of the troubling aspects of my day-to-day life, I took things in stride as much as I was able to. I agreed to assist my friends in their endeavors, and I even began to enjoy the process of researching the many claimed hauntings of the world around us. It wasn't until around six months since my spill from the stairs of that condemned building that I began to experience my own strange occurrences. The doorman stood just outside the apartment building in which I lived. I'd gone in and out of that front door many times over the months after my accident, but I'd never seen him before. He was a very tall and slender man with a gaunt face and incredibly pale skin. The outfit he wore appeared more akin to something from another time. It was a red velvet double-breasted suit with gold trims and buttons. The jacket was short, only coming down to his waistline. And the hat he wore resembled a flat bowler hat without a brim. Though the clothes he wore looked as though they'd been precisely tailored to fit, they were also quite tattered and worn. There were small tears in a variety of places, along with scorch marks across the chest, arms, and legs. They were clean, all things considered, but still somewhat dirty. It was as though they'd been tossed into a sooty fireplace immediately after being cleaned and dry. It's time to come home, sir. 
he said in an unsettling deep and proper English accent. Though he stood beside the entry to my apartment building, he did not gesture to the front door, but to another that stood to the left of him. The fact that I'd never noticed the secondary entrance puzzled me just as much as the man next to it. I chose to pay no attention to the strange individual and make my way through the entryway I had intended on. I turned back to gaze back at the man as I entered, but he appeared unfazed by my ignoring him. He still stood in place, gesturing to the foreign door, acknowledging none of the other passerby. That night I was awakened from my sleep by the scent of something burning. As soon as my eyes sprung open, I could not contain the cough that had plagued me as of late, as the smoke that formed beneath my door took hold in my throat, causing the regular sputtering to grow far more aggravated and sore. I rolled out of my bed and buckled over as the violent cough threatened to drop me to my knees. I wheezed and grabbed at my side while I made my way to the exit of my bedroom. I outstretched my arm and placed my palm against the door. I quickly pulled back my hand as the burning wood instantly scorched my flesh. I continued to hack in between strained breaths while staring down at the swollen skin of my palm. As I glazed upon my hand, the flesh began to bubble and pop. Blood streamed between my fingers while the flesh melted and dripped to the floor. I screamed out in horror while I stared at the bare muscle tissue that continued to steam and pull apart, revealing the bone behind it. My eyes were pulled away from my disintegrating appendage when the door gave way. The inferno raged on beyond the now open doorway. A lone individual stood in the center of the blaze, holding his hand out toward me. The doorman then waved his limbs back into the fire before swatting against it, directing it straight at me. The flames reached out at me, and I felt the sharpened talons of the blistering fire wrap its tendrils around my arms and legs. As I felt my flesh fall away from my bones, my eyes flew open, awakening me from the vivid nightmare that left me spluttering and retching onto the floor beside my bed. I made a rudimentary inspection of the apartment that still felt very foreign to me, to find nothing out of place that I could tell. I still smelled smoke drifting into my nasal cavities, but I found no evidence of anything burning. I even walked out into the hallway, holding my hand in front of my mouth in an attempt to muffle the hacking cough. It's not the cough that carries you, the voice called out again from my subconscious. Once I was satisfied that my paranoia was no more than the result of the unsettingly vivid dream, I attempted to lay back down. It took me some time to regain my grip on sleep as my cough was far more aggravated than it had been during the night's first try, but I drifted off eventually. I'm not entirely sure why I didn't mention the encounter with the usual doorman to my friends, especially since it would be far more to their expertise than my own. The city houses many strange individuals, so perhaps this one was no different from the random strangers muttering to themselves on the subway. The more I let my mind wander to thoughts of this man, the more my sputtering cough burned in my throat. Though the injuries from my fall had healed, the cough remained, as did my memory loss. Maybe this is the nature of psychosomatic symptoms. The neurologist I was referred to could find nothing physically wrong with me. 
He backed up the emergency room doctor's recommendation to talk to a psychiatrist. The shrink, as Gerald called him, advised some breathing techniques and meditation to assist in the relief of my ailments, but they were not very effective. Since psychological help required talking about the issues that plagued the patient, my inability to recall anything before my accident made it difficult to make any sort of progress, but I would still visit him every two weeks. That would be the second time I saw the tall man in the gold-lined velvet suit. As the taxi cab dropped me off in front of the office, I did not see the doorman from a distance as I approached the building. It wasn't until I was reaching out to push the door open that I heard this cold, deep voice from my left again. It's really time you come home, sir, he said, gesturing to the newly manifested entryway to the side of the one I'd initially sought out. This time I stopped and took the time to glance at the entrance he requested that I pass through. It was a large red door with intricate filigree around the border. It had a large tarnished gold lever to gain entry to whatever lay behind it, which looked quite ornate and likely uncomfortable to get one's hand around. If you would be so kind, he remarked as I stared into his sunken, hollow eyes, both of which were quite large and glossy black. Once again, I chose not to speak to the individual who towered over me as though I were a child. I simply reached out to push through the door to the office of my psychiatrist, whom I planned to confide in about my recent hallucinations in between my hacking coughs. By the time the doctor had called me back into his office, I had dramatically shifted my outlook on sharing anything about the doorman. Perhaps I was concerned about my hallucinations inspiring my doctor to have me committed. Maybe I simply couldn't force myself to speak the words out loud. Either way, I chose to stay silent on the topic. As the days went on, I was visited by the tall man in the gold-lined velvet suit more and more. He stood outside every building I walked into. Wherever there was a door I intended to enter, he stood beside it with the other door next to him. Even in my apartment, when I could head from my bathroom, he was there. Should I seek entry to my bedroom? His deep voice would beckon to me. Each time I ignored him, my cough would practically buckle me to the floor while I gasped for oxygen. I lost count of how many times I'd seen his gaunt and lifeless face by the time I decided to begin researching the hotel that had led me to my current state. I'm sure I'd looked into the abandoned building before, but I wouldn't know where to find anything I'd already looked up. Gerald and Nathan had coached me on using the computer in my apartment, but I still found it quite awkward to operate. As my friends had demonstrated, I clicked the arrow over the Google Chrome icon. From there, I was able to type in my search request, which pulled up several links to information on the building's history. According to the website I settled on, the hotel was constructed in the early 20th century. It was 1957 when the fire consumed several of the higher floors, leading to the death of 23 people, including a variety of businessmen, women, and children. Ten years or so after the fire, the building was purchased by a wealthy individual who already owned several other such structures. 
He had much of the old place fixed up, and it would go on to house many more temporary residents until it was once more consumed by the flames in early 2013. Over the decades of the second iteration of the hotel ran, many guests would speak of strange sounds and unusual events having taken place within the walls of their room. Everything from spectral figures walking the hallways to random objects floating from one place to another were reported, though nothing ever left any trace of evidence. It would appear that I was not the first supernatural investigator to step foot into the building, but my predecessors had done their detective work while the doors were still open to the public. Regardless, no proof of anything paranormal was ever found, or never reported, anyway. While I absentmindedly panned down through the images of the victims who were lost in both of the blazes that closed the doors to the hotel, I felt my back stiffen as the cursor traced over a face that appeared far more familiar than it should have. I clicked on the image to expand the black and white photograph of a family who died in the first fire and raged through the hallways of the deceased hotel. I had a vivid recollection of the mother, father, and child that stood side by side in the ancient photograph. The woman was very pretty, dark curly hair, pleasant wide smile, and a polka dot dress that hung just past her knees. The man had short, light hair that looked to be greased high and tight. He wore a suit that had a dark shaded collar that contrasted with the rest of his lighter jacket. The boy, who looked to be maybe 12 or so, wore dark jeans and a white t-shirt with the sleeves rolled up. His hair looked to be the same style as his father's, but the color of his mother. I stared at the picture for some time, not coughing once while it entranced me. I knew these people. I was certain of that. I finally broke my gaze away from the eerie old photograph of the long since dead, and I continued to pan through the images until another familiar face caught my attention. The doorman wore a much more happier expression as he stood proudly beside the door that led to the hotel. He was a good head taller than the short and stocky balding man in the business suit to the side of him, but he did not appear the giant I'd seen him as recently. His bright eyes looked far less malicious combined with the friendly smile he wore. Another fit of sputtering coughs distracted me from the image, causing me to fall from my chair to the floor. I gripped one hand around my burning and scratching throat while the other assisted my knees in preventing me from planting my face into the carpet. It's not the cough that carries you off. It's the coffin they carry you off in. I replied to the voice in my head, completing the phrase my father used to say, ending in the invading hack. A sudden clarity awakened inside me, and I knew what I had to do. I would return to that hotel one last time. Fortunately, I wouldn't have to travel far to get there. Are you ready to come home, sir? The doorman asked from behind where I still knelt. I got to my feet and turned to face him. He stood to the right of the red door that was now erected in the center of the living room. The smile on his face combined with the compassion in his darkened eyes as his outstretched arm gestured to the entrance back to where I belonged. I'm ready, 
I replied, stepping out from inside the body I'd taken possession of so many months before. I hadn't meant you any harm. I honestly didn't even know I was capable of such a thing. When you tumbled down the staircase after seeing me standing there, I didn't know what to do. It was not my intention to frighten you, but it had been so long since I saw anyone outside of the others who still dwell behind those charred walls. I glided down to where you lay, reached out my spectral arms in an attempt to help. Somehow I found myself staring up through your eyes as my memories faded into the black. Had I known what I'd done, I may have been able to escape you sooner, but I was so lost. Our now shared eyelids closed and I fell into the darkness. I was only a boy when the fire raged through the third floor room I stayed in with my parents. We were all so excited about visiting the city for the very first time. Never seen such wonders in the little town I was born into. My father took me to see my first real-life ball game the day before the smoke choked the life from us in our sleep. Was it that smoke that caused me to cough so violently? Perhaps I'd simply dwelled too long in a body that was not made for me. I suppose it doesn't matter anymore. As the doorman pulled the door open to reveal my loving parents' smiling faces staring back at me, I asked for just a few more moments before I returned. I'd hijacked your life. It's only fair that I leave a message to you to explain. Though it scared me to jump into your skin once more, I hoped that my newfound awareness would grant me the ability to hold on to myself this time. I was unsure how it happened the first time, so I just lay down within your body as it lay unconscious on the floor next to the desk. I held onto myself much stronger than I had last time as I guided the borrowed fingers across the keyboard that felt so strange to use. The doorman waited patiently while I typed out these words as he knew I would come with him this time. Please forgive me for this. I truly meant you no harm, nor was I aware... This was even possible. If you could say goodbye to Gerald and Nathan for me, I'd very much appreciate that. They truly are wonderful people. I suspect I shall miss them. Please continue your research into the paranormal. I think it's safe to say that you're on the right track. I will be going now. My family's awaiting my return. Farewell, my friend. When I woke up, sitting at my desk, it took me a moment to notice the text on my computer screen. I couldn't remember a damn thing since going into the building. It took me a while to get my bearings. It seems like I have a lot to catch up on, but I'm really curious to see what my friends think about all this. I'm not entirely sure what even to say to them, but it looks like I've been out of it for quite a while. Take from this what you will, but I have no other answer for why the last God knows how many months are a complete blank. I was always the skeptic of my trio of the paranormal investigators, but there was just something about that old hotel that got under my skin. Quite literally, it seems. And I ain't gonna lie, it's very tempting to drag my ass back to that dilapidated building, but it feels like this was some piss-poor decision-making last time. I wonder if the guys would be interested in looking into it more. 
knowing what I know now. I'll tell you one thing, though. If I do go back, sure as hell ain't climbing the stairs. I want to give a quick thank you to all of my $5 patrons and members. That's Absinthe Alice, Alice E, Amethyst, Amet, Caroline, Christina Smith, CT, Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, LSG, Furious Weasel, If in Doubt, Flat Out, Justin Yazaromsky, Karen Parrott, Kat, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, Myla, Nicholas Moore, Nikki Parsons, Ray Clegg, The New On Gum 24, Tiger Princess, and Victoria Stepp. Thank you all for the continued support. I really, really appreciate it.